Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As always, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca and check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And we are back in action. That's right, Leslie will be swinging by a little bit later in the show for another exciting geology corner. This week we're getting a little bit interstellar. We will talk asteroids, we will talk impact events, and we will reach back into the depths of Earth's history to take you on a little bit of a journey. Uh, It's going to be rad. Uh, Please do uh, hold out for that. It'll be coming along in just a little bit. And in addition, I have some exclusive comments from an interview that I did with the president and CEO of Arizona Mining. Uh, That is Jim Gowans. And uh, we will talk a little bit about the recent preliminary economic assessment they release on their Taylor deposit. Uh, Specifically, we will talk about metallurgy and manganese. Uh, So those will be coming up a bit later in the show. I know a lot of people are interested in that. Uh, It's one of very few uh, sort of high-profile zinc development assets globally so uh, I know a lot of people are paying attention to that Uh, the last couple weeks we have featured zinc fairly heavily in the show Uh, so it's great to uh, touch base with one of the uh, sort of uh, sort of leading zinc developers here to talk a little bit about a developing the Taylor deposit in Arizona uh, and also sort of where they are and and, uh, how quickly they can move it through to feasibility Uh, so I'll run a couple comments it's about six minutes from Jim a little bit later in the show but before we get to all of that exciting stuff uh, we'll just cover a few macro news items to start the week. First, let's uh, quickly run through our metal prices for the day. Uh, Gold was on its way up, uh, trading at $1,276.30 per ounce at the time of recording, while silver was at $18.34 per ounce. Meanwhile, copper was trading at $2.61 per pound, while West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $53.44 per barrel at the time of recording. Um, And what we're going to cover a little bit today was, as we noted last week, uh, the 16th annual World Copper conference just wrapped up in Santiago, Chile. Now what I have is a few uh, analyst notes on kind of what went down uh, at the conference. Uh, So you might uh, have a little bit of an update on where some of the major market players see the red metal uh, moving over the next, let's say, well, let's say mid to near term. Uh, So there's a few interesting notes here uh, just on supply. Um, Obviously, we talked a lot about uh, over the first quarter about supply disruptions. That was sort of the buzzword uh, and the impact they could have on the uh, larger uh, sort of market balance for copper. Uh, As noted, uh, BHP uh, wrapped up its labor negotiations at Escondida. Uh, There may be uh, Southern Copper maybe having a problem in Peru, which we covered last week. Uh, Well, negotiations between the Indonesian government and Freeport McMoran over the Grasberg operation remain ongoing. Uh, So what was going on at the 16th Annual World Copper Conference? Uh, Well, I have a few notes here. Firstly, uh, first one's from Scotiabank, uh, which labeled the tone at the conference cautiously optimistic. Uh, Quote, unquote, In our view, the general sentiment on the outlook for copper at this year's conference can best be described as cautiously optimistic. After surviving a very difficult cycle, the recent improvement in the copper price is a welcome development for both miners and investors. However, assuming there is no repeat of the large mine disruptions experienced in Q1, future price expectations remain largely muted in the near term as the market would appear to be hovering very close to balance. On a medium-term view, a lack of new supply growth appears likely to drive the market into a large net deficit position, placing significant upward pressure on prices. 
prices. Uh, this in turn will no doubt stimulate the next wave of copper development projects moving forward. And if you recall last week, I cited some research from GMP, which uh, concluded something similar, that the price required to incentivize new copper, copper developments, giving our average head grades and CapEx requirements, needs to be higher. I uh, think $3 plus. So uh, that view is shared and was probably <laughs> adequately communicated at the copper conference, I would imagine. Now, the second sort of major headline that stood out to me uh, coming out of the Copper Conference, and I've been hearing this in terms of a number of industrial metals, uh, and this headline is India is the next frontier. Now, Vedanta projects Indian copper demand to increase by an average of 9% per year through 2025, which would result in it reaching 2.25 million tons of annual consumption. Uh, that represents about 10% of global demand, and unlike China, India has no major copper reserves and is fully dependent on imports. Meanwhile, uh, down in Chile, uh, Research noted that Chilean copper investment has sharply declined. Planned investment in 37 Chilean copper projects in the 2016 through 2025 period is estimated at nearly 50 billion. Now, this is markedly down from the previously planned 77.2 billion in the 2015 through 2024 period and a peak of 112.5 billion in the 2013 through 2022 period. Uh, while only eight of the planned 30 seven projects can be attributed to Codelco, its share of CapEx is disproportionately high at $21.6 billion, or 44% of that total. Now, Scotiabank notes it remains unclear what level of funding Codelco received to support this planned growth. And then uh, the Chilean, Chilean Minister of Mines uh, forecasts modest copper deficits of 110,000 tons in 2017 and 45,000 tons in 2018, uh, which would support prices at the 250 to $255 per pound level. So I think overall what we're seeing is a little bit of a pullback in that bullish start to the year we saw with copper where uh, the supply disruption narrative was really driving a lot of uh, well a you know spot price activity and b uh, a little bit of a, a bullish mentality on uh, copper exploration and development projects uh, as we're seeing now the uh, midterm pricing is staying under that three dollars per pound level um, and as noted we'll probably have to wait until there is uh, a need for these new development projects that fall at an average head grade of below on average 0.5% copper uh, to see the incentivization needed to get these things into development, which would likely require in excess of $3, uh, probably higher than that. Uh, so that's just a quick roundup on copper for you. Uh, we'll continue to follow that story along throughout the year, along with zinc, because they're very, uh, very topical metals right now, and we're having a lot of conversations on those. But we'll return to zinc uh, for our Arizona mining segment a little bit later in the show. But without further ado, let's swing on over to the geology corner with the ever effervescent Leslie Stokes to check in on a little bit of interstellar mining activity. Uh, at this point, we're going to be talking about banded iron formations, snowball earth, and a variety of other amazing things from Earth's history uh, that we can uh, draw upon to talk a little bit about the formation of deposits. Um, so Leslie will talk about asteroids and a bunch of other amazing stuff. Uh, so yeah, let's get into it, and I'll see you after the break to uh, talk a little bit about Arizona mining and the interview with president and ceo jim gowans hey hey, hey. we're back we're back in studio yeah 
Yeah, we're doing geology corner. We, we missed last week, so yeah, making yeah, up was, for it this uh, week now. I was working on my thesis, which is a beast. I just hit twenty thousand words. Wow. Yeah. How many words have you written in your lifetime? Do you think? Oh, I, I couldn't even tell you. Couldn't even guess. Not even close. No, no, no. It's got to be testimony. Yeah, probably millions. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of words. A week? Yeah, no, 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 definitely not. Now we're doing all that data stuff. It's more like graphy stuff. So. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, not as many words, but uh, it's yeah. Evolution of language. You're moving in more towards graphs and interactivity. Hey, I was just reading a thing about how much, uh, how quicker the human mind can process images versus words. Interesting. So it's a way quicker not way to get people to understand stuff, assuming the images are set up correctly. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. So I last week I was uh, pretty much out of office because I. Well, I guess the same thing when you think about interacting with other people is that 90% of the conversation is through body language yeah. and is nonverbal. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting concept because maybe that's the interactivity is like, it's like the body language, but in computers, computer body language. Yeah, no, it's going to be fun to work with all that <laughs> stuff. Something. So. Yeah, something, something like that. There's yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's great. We're going to have that Wouldn't on record forever now so everybody can, I know. can refer back. <laughs> see if we were right on that one um but uh so what are we looking at cool. uh, for the corner this oh week? man so for this week's geology corner i'm going to be talking about the rise of oxygen on earth and how oh. it played a really critical role in the formation of the largest metal accumulations on the planet which are banded iron formations banded iron formations, and sedimentary copper deposits yeah we talked about sedex copper Oh, said 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 copper and Sedex is different. Yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right, that's a zinc. But yeah. we we did do a huge uh, piece on understanding. Kakula. Yeah, sedimentary yeah. hosted on copper Ivan deposits in, in DRC. That was right. episode thirty four or something. Oh, you can remember that? I don't. remember. I was looking at it the other day and I was laughing because I kept saying uranium in it <laughs> because I was like in this uranium mode and I was like, like, oh god. Sometimes people ask me they're like, oh, I really like that thing in episode such and such, and I'm like. Man, I, I don't remember the episode number. Yeah, We've done 50. This is like our 55th. I don't I, Like, I sort of roughly remember themes or like, I can, like if we have a PDAC week or like a... Uh, like, I can remember those, but if it's just like some episode in the middle of like August, I don't remember. <laughs> Sorry. I, like, I'm sure it was great. I'm sure yeah. what we did was fantastic, but <laughs> was there's way too many of them now for me to keep track. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so... Well, you know, the rise of oxygen on Earth is actually such a perfect topic. It's like a, it's like a perfect icebreaker for any investor who finds themselves in a room with a geologist because it'll provide hours upon hours of well-debated banter. There you go. I know. So, anyway, just to equip you guys with some knowledge to get you through it. Um, so, Earth's early atmosphere, of course, uh, was dominated by greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane. Right, so temperatures were like extraordinary, it was extremely hot, inhospitable. And then fast forward to today, of course, it's made up of nitrogen and oxygen. So accumulate to accumulate oxygen in the atmosphere is a huge feat. Okay? Oxygen is super corrosive, it's not really stable, it reacts with things. Um, so it's not really an easy element to accumulate. So there's also no other planet in the solar system that has oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so surely something extraordinary must have happened to our planet. But what exactly and when are the big questions? And um, so you'd be amazed at how geologists have dug up this answer. It's pretty cool. You know, just leave it to us. We'll figure it out. Yeah. So measuring and analyzing gas isotopes in ice core, for example, can only deliver information about the composition of the atmosphere up to about maybe a million years of age. 
right? That's how far back we can go with ice. But with rocks, Earth scientists can study biogenic sulfides, cyanobacteria, stromatolites, all that stuff that is trapped in the big, long rock record in order to get an understanding of how chemistries have shifted over billions of years. Because there's layers. Well, no, it's because, yeah, because there's layers, so yeah. you know the age, like and a, then the yeah, composition the of composition. these little, yeah. little itty-bitty sort of isotopes, and you can measure what's kind of going on with that. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, rather than like hunting out all these like tiny little isotopes and rocks, there's some pretty more obvious clues that will help ge- uh, geologists narrow down their, their window of time when oxygen came in. Okay. So, really cool example. Okay is the world-famous gold deposits within the Witwatersand Basin in South Africa. The biggest gold deposits in the world. Totally. So the deposits contain a lot of cobbles and pebbles of like reworked gold and sulfide, right? Pyrite. Um, And that was deposited in a basin about 3.1 billion years ago in the Archean um, through all these like dense networks of streams and you name it. So if oxygen had been around at the surface 3.1 billion years ago, then obviously the pyrite would have oxidized, but it never. So we know that there was no oxygen whatsoever on the Earth's surface or in the oceans, whatever, um, 3.1 billion. Okay. Cool. So the best proxy that geologists use to determine when the Earth became oxygenated is by the presence of um, iron-rich rocks in the rock record. So they're also known as banded iron formations. Okay. That makes sense. Biffs, biffs, biffs. Because of the way iron interacts with oxygen. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So there's two types of BIFs that we have to kind of differentiate is there's the Algoma type, which is um, those that were associated with submarine volcanism, especially that you find in greenstone belts, like the ones that host the Meliadine and yep. Meadowbank um, deposits in Nunavut. Uh, that belongs to Ang- um Agnico. Agnico, thank yep. you. So, but there's also the superior type iron formations, and they suddenly appeared 2.5 billion years ago, depositing through to 1.8 hmm. billion. Okay. So they just like poof came up, and so superior type BIF, they're made up of alternating bands of iron-rich minerals and chert that once deposit along a shallow marine margin of like ancient continents. So the bigger the continent, continent, the bigger the platform margin, right? Yeah. So anyway. Um, which is a little side note. So the sedimentary hosted iron is present as magnetite or hematite, which, like you said before, could only be formed under oxidizing conditions. Mm -hmm. Hematite, of course, more so than magnetite, right? And the drastic abundance of these iron deposits at 2.5 billion years has given geologists a firm grip that something extraordinary happened at 2.5 billion years and the oceans were like had a lot of oxygen in them and then of course there's continental red beds so rocks kind of around the same age um they had a lot of like oxidized sedimentary rocks so it shows that there was oxygen in the surf on the surface too Mm-hmm. So it started to accumulate in the in the atmosphere. Okay. So the whole event has been coined the Great Oxygenation Event. The Great Oxygenation. I know event. it's cool. Every I love how geologists like making everything so grand. Yeah. You know, but it was a big deal. Um, and the question is like, what brought in the oxygen? Or another question you'd ask is, who? Aliens. I know. <laughs> Aliens did it for sure. Clearly. <laughs> sure good guess Matt good guess a little bit wrong just a little (laughs) bit wrong if you think that the blue green bacteria cyanobacteria is could be kind of alien like well maybe you're right 
because so back then the ocean started to teem with cyanobacteria. At least that's this is the popular theory, guys. The bacteria was living in a reduced ocean world, but the organism had evolved to split water into hydrogen and oxygen to survive. So because the oceans were so laden with dissolved iron at the time, the oxygen that they were producing quickly reacted with the iron to form magnetite and hematite and precipitate it onto the seafloor as bands. Oh. Cool, right? Yeah. So the more bacteria started to grow, the waters became quickly very oxic, and in turn the bacteria died, so you just had a cessation of precipitation of iron. And of course the cycle would repeat over and over again for, I don't know, I don't know how long, but millions of years, and this created alternating bands of iron and church. Okay, that makes that's sense. That's the bandit iron formation. Yep, that's the That's the idea. Yeah. Um, so at some point over time, you had all these like iron-rich oceans became a little less iron-rich and a little bit less until there was like not much iron left in the ocean for the oxygen to bind with. That makes sense. So the oxygen was just like free, 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 and bubbled up out of the ocean and into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then so oxygenated water into oxygenated atmosphere. Into the atmosphere. Yeah. Cool. So um, from studies, they know, this is so incredible how they know this stuff, but 1.8 billion years ago, the atmospheric oxygen stabilized around 5 to 18% of present levels. Okay, okay. So, and, but, so the deep oceans were still super, like, anoxic. Not even super anoxic. There's either oxic or anoxic. Yeah, yeah. So there's there was anoxic. Area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the deposition of Biff came to a halt around then, too, and nobody really knows why. But, you know, I came across this really cool theory mm-hmm. about why suddenly, you know, these iron formations just stopped, just stopped at one yeah. point. Eight. Um, they said that, like, you know, and they pointed back to Sudbury, the impact of Sudbury with the with the big asteroid. Yeah, well, so, guys, yeah. 1.8 billion years ago, big asteroid 10 kilometers wide plowed into Sudbury, Ontario, mm-hmm. when Sudbury, Ontario was, you know, something else. But anyway, yeah. that's a different other story. But anyway, so slammed into Ontario into that area and um, that in turn of course generated all these melts that drove up and creating the famous Sudbury nickel copper camp yeah right of course so the impact created a sharp lull in deposition of this biff that's what they found in the rock record and some scientists believe that the tidal wave that was created by this asteroid okay. drove deep basinal oxygen free waters into higher parts of the continental margin okay well that makes sense so without any oxygen there's nothing there to like kind of create yeah. the iron. The so there was a lull yeah. after that, which I think is pretty cool. There I don't know if t- I believe it. Wave, it? <laughs> I don't know. That's awesome. I don't any any opportunity for me to mention tidal waves and in, in the geology corner I'm gonna take. It's funny they don't really know the far reaching consequences of those impact events. Like they don't know quite how they could have how much they could have changed everything, right? Yeah. Like any sort of impact event that you you read about, not just Sudbury but anywhere, it's like well, it could be related to this, but well, yeah, know, like... some there, yeah, totally. So there are some events that are just like we don't really know the impact of it, mm-hmm. but with, for example, oxygen in the atmosphere, yeah. it had some crazy impact, some crazy yeah. impacts, obviously on life, yeah, but also on global glaciation and stuff, which I'll probably talk about. <laughs> so, um, okay, so there was another big oxygen event. That happened around 800 million years ago. Okay. And that kind of came from the proliferation of, of new life, like eukaryotes. I don't know if you remember that in biology. Eukaryotes. Eukaryotes. I, that sounds very familiar. Eukaryotes. Yeah. 
yuckagiorts. <laughs> so, um, so they, they think that like these like more evolved forms of life triggered another great oxygen event that basically oxygenated the oceans completely. And okay. at that point, the, the amount of oxygen on Earth was, is at of present levels. So it just brought it just raised the bar because these little organisms were producing oxygen. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, there's, some, there's something there. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah, there's there's lots of other things that are happening too. Like there's lichen kicking around and yeah, and so yeah, so there's there's a lot a of, lot of uh, variables. Yeah, I think maybe the eukaryotes is lichen. Anyway, everyone can laugh at me who's listening to this and knows <laughs> the answer because I clearly I don't. I, we're not biologists. This is not the biology corner. <laughs> we're okay. I think. Yeah, if this was a biology, this is corner, not the biology corner. Yeah, that would be embarrassing if it was a biology corner. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be terrible. So anyway, um, but this is also a really interesting event because 800 million years ago, um, what ended up happening was is that with there was not much iron left in the water to pre- precipitate out all you know the magnetite and whatever, and um, the waters became in turn uh, hydrogen sulfate rich. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. because if you don't have iron in the water. And if you don't have, like, the, the, you have the oxygen, then it won't precipitate out as pyrite. Yeah, it won't come out yeah, as pyrite, yeah. So, sorry, I'm, like, I'm like blowing my nose here. Um, <laughs> so this allowed development of deep basinal sulfate brines that um, were able to chemically strip metals like copper out of the sediments. Yeah. So for millions of years, these brines started to deposit copper wherever the waters, like, hit a reducing layer. And um, that's how sedimentary copper hosted sedimentary hosted copper deposits formed. Very large. Extremely large, yeah. and that's and that's why like so that that was like a turn and turn event of of how a lot of the world class Congolese and Zambian copper belts were formed was because of this change in ocean chemistries as a result of of um, oxygenation. Oh, but so the really interesting thing is like you know how you're saying how these big events what kind of impact that they did have. Um, one of the big things is with both of these um, oxygenation events, they were correlated with um, really huge global glaciation times. Oh, okay. Yeah, so snowball earth. Yeah. yeah. Um, both Ice times. Ages. Yeah, it would start, it's like oxygenation, and then shabam, global glaciation. Why would that be? All these shins, shins, shins. Um, one idea I think they say is that oxygen would have removed methane, a greenhouse oh. gas, out of okay. the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and in doing so... Of course, that would drive like global temperatures down. Downwards, yeah. Um, now, the other really cool thing that I picked up when I was reading this, and I never really appreciated it before, is there's other impacts that um, the Earth's climate can change, right, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the composition of the atmosphere, is mountain building. Okay. So um, if you have, for example, a bunch of continents coming together into a supercontinent, yeah, you know, like a into... like Pangaea, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You get all these huge mountain ranges in between the suture lines, right? Between the, of course. the cratons. Yeah. We have a couple here in Canada that have been leveled. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so each one of those Himalayan scale sort of ranges, actually, um, when they're being eroded, they're stripping CO two out of that atmosphere. Huh. Mm-hmm. There you go. And I so did not know you that. can actually change, like you can have um, global glaciation temperatures, like. Just or like yeah, global temperatures can drop just by mountain range alone. Wow! So we see that today in the Himalayas. Like no. since Himalayas gone up, then I think Antarctica has actually turned solid ice. Wow! Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I know. Didn't know that. It's yeah. so cool, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's the idea. So I guess like um, I guess the the story is like the composition of Earth's atmosphere is far from static. 
So alongside mountain building, uh, these composition changes, of course, are occur with like increased volcanic activity and the burning of fossil fuels. So the Earth always has some sort of sink up her sleeve, just like oxygen was stripped out of the oceans and into these iron rocks. But of course, there's always a tipping point. So in other words, go buy a Tesla or invest in lithium. <laughs> invest in lithium. Don't, we don't say that. Here. We don't tell people that. I know. Don't invest in lithium if you want. Yeah. <laughs> but, Matt's uh, side note. Anyway, that's that's the geology that's corner the this geology week. Geology corner. Perfect. Well, uh, we will catch everybody next week. Next week, have a great one. Bye. And welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Leslie Stokes for taking us on another fascinating tour of Earth's uh, varied history. Uh, we do look forward to what Leslie will have on the burner for us next week at the Geology Corner. Uh, but for now, let's talk zinc. Uh, as noted, zinc has been a pretty big uh, topic of conversation for us over the past little while, probably since the beginning of the first quarter, if not late 2016, largely because prices have indeed rallied. Uh, at the time of recording, uh, zinc was trading at $1.16 per pound, which are levels that really weren't seen uh, since the last rally, which uh, was between 2006-2007 when we saw zinc hit that $2 per pound level. Uh, so Arizona mining. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, about this to uh, start the show, uh, but I had a chance to sit down with President and CEO Jim Gowans and talk about a PEA uh, preliminary economic assessment that Arizona released on its Taylor Zinc Lead Silver Sulfide deposit on April 3rd. Now, this PEA includes a uh, initial capex of $457 million, a payback period of 1.7 years, an MPV at 8% of $1.26 billion, and an after-tax internal rate of return, IRR, of 42%. Uh, this mine would have a 19-year life and would produce, on average, uh, an annual zinc production of 287 million pounds, annual lead production of 286 million pounds, and added, uh, annual silver production of 5.5 million ounces. And Arizona has come a long way in a short amount of time. When I first talked to them in February of 2016, uh, I sat down with uh, Jim Gowans, who just come in as president and CEO after a brief stint at Barrick, um, and Donald Taylor, the chief operating officer. Uh, Arizona's shares were sitting at about 38 cents, I believe, per share, um, and now they're at $2.12. So they've really uh, sort of ridden this rising zinc price, as well as the fact they have a project that appears to have a quick path to production, uh, a really competitive uh, zinc equivalent grade of 11% um, and optionality in terms of development due to the fact they hold both patented and non-patented land so they can control the footprint a little bit to make permitting easier to work uh, work with. Um, so yeah, but one of the things that Arizona sort of made headlines with over the past six months was that they had a, a moderate dust-up uh, with a, I believe it was a mining blogger from uh, the Global Mining Observer, wherein uh, their, uh, some of the assumptions they were making around the manganese content in their concentrate were called into question uh, in terms of penalties and uh, profitability and things like that. Uh, so they've sort of been uh, it's sort of clarifying uh, the manganese content in the concentrate, what they plan to do with it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but it was sort of a back and forth for a little bit there, and it definitely had a little bit of a uh, well short-term impact on their share price. Uh, so we do get into that, Jim and I, uh, when we have a conversation. I swung by Arizona's office last week just to catch up, uh, talk a little bit about the PEA, the concentrate, and uh, what they're plans are coming up. So uh, I will run those comments in my discussion with Jim and I will return after the break to wrap up the show. And interestingly, uh, some of the uh, analyst notes obviously come across my desk every day. 
Um, and one of the things I noticed that uh, some of the mentioned was your, your capex was lower than a lot of people anticipated for the uh, upfront development. We, we were always saying it was around about eight hundred. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so what uh, when we when we ended up the, with the PA uh, with all the engineering companies, we uh, they said okay, the best way to do this is to ramp down. And then do the lateral development while we while you drop the shaft. Uh, we had always thought of doing a double decline from over to the other side, but the reality is the timing that was too long. I see. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the ramp down in the shaft. So all of a sudden you're into production before you even finish the shaft. So as we start moving, we make a stockpile and then we start to yeah. ramp up. So so what happened on our Capital cost, initial capital come down to just under a, a half a billion, more because of a timing issue than anything else. So okay. the shaft costs are half of them are in initial cost, and then the, the finishing off and everything is in the sustaining, sustaining cost yeah. because we had already started up. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there, there are some, there were some issues mainly on the, the timing issues, right? Because at the end of the day, our total costs are between initial and capital is about a billion dollars. Yeah, so it moved, yeah. so you had 90 million dollars of shaft cost that moved from initial to, to uh, things. And we do yeah. know that our uh, uh, initial estimates of, our, of the process plant, because it's turned out to be quite a simple process, the, our capital costs on the processing plant uh, were reduced. Okay. And the shaft is not as deep as what we initially anticipated. So we were okay. overly generous. We said, okay, it's going to have to go down around 4,500 feet or, uh, and now the shaft is just a little over 3,600. Okay. Okay. That makes a difference. So that's, yeah. that's 50, 60 million right there. Yeah, right? Exactly. So yeah. you, so you take that out, uh, that goes out and then you shift another 90 million off into sustaining. And all of a sudden now you've got 150 million, uh, that if you add that on there, uh, to have you're up to 650 or 700 right uh, and yeah. we, now we have two tailings so we have initial tailings and then we do a final tailings right okay. so so that's the so now you're spending 20 million and just in in the tailings facility and then you're going to spend all over again or more uh, yeah. for the federal right so there are were a couple things like that that got shifted over and that's just to clarify um because i remember us talking about the patented versus non-patented um, yeah. So right. initially, the, we're starting up on the patented land, and we can we have enough for about eight years of operation. Okay. And then we know that we're too large in our body, and we eventually uh, have to have a tailings facility on on the federal the federal land. land. Yeah. And so I we mean, will start permitting that uh, as we start up. And, uh, you know, yeah, and then you should have enough. We have eight years. We yeah. we know that that's more about twice as much as we need. And I mean, one of the other things, I guess, Jim, and it, I sort of have to ask this, I guess, there's, there's been some external, um, obviously, uh, talk about your metallurgy. Um, yeah, magnesium seen, stuff. Yeah, people have seen the, uh, the comments on the mag, how the concentrates might look. Where do you think that, if, it, if that was indeed a misunderstanding externally, where did that, why, why do you think people made such a big deal about it? Because uh, I think they were uninformed, yeah. uh, you know, and stuff, uh, you know, and who knows, we had a big short position just before it happened, and yeah. we lost the short position after it happened, but, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, you know, I spent, uh, uh, I went down to the International Zinc Association as a result of, of that. We knew, we, even our uh, preliminary test work we put out in February of last year, mm -hmm. instead that the uh, MGO contents 
or the uh, M and uh, manganese content is going to be one. 1.3 plus or minus, right? Yep. So yep. between 1.3 and 1.4. Yeah. So it was always there. It was mm -hmm. existing. To, and when we did the metallurgical test work, we did a lot of test work on uh, on the concentrates. The manganese occurs as a, as a solid. Uh, it's a substitution ion in the in the crystal lattice of the of the sphalerite. Of oh, the sphalerite. Okay. And that's un, not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at so uh, so we do knew that we would pay a penalty and we uh, we had already anticipated that would be the case right but the reality is if you pay anywhere from 10 to 20 dollars a ton for penalties for that manganese uh on a thousand dollar concentrate it's like one percent right? it's marketable yeah yeah um and interestingly prior to just talking about this you also mentioned there's a bit more work to do on the metal um, so maybe about where it is now and where you are. Yeah, so we, we've done enough test work on all the different areas uh, that we're pretty comfortable. Our, our concentrates, relatively speaking, are, so I, I call it there's type 1 de deleterious materials and there's type 2, right? Okay. So type 2 are what I call the annoyance, which is manganese, iron, yeah. that kind of thing. Right? Kind type of 1 thing. is uh, arsenic, Ars mercury, yeah. and all the bad guys. Stuff right? you really don't want. Yeah, and we have none of that, right? It's yeah. like totally really clean. And so when you actually look at, so we're, in the next five years, there's the three big major uh, zinc projects coming on stream ourselves, Dugald River, which is MMG's yep. uh, replacement for Century. for Century, and that would probably be about the same throughput as our, or through, same concentrate production, about a quarter million. Yeah, about the same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're higher than us in manganese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and then you got Vedanta, which is Hamsburg, which has been around since I did Polaris. Yeah, uh, it's an older, older project. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. now it's got to the point where they they're gonna use technology at Scorpion to handle the majority of that concentrate, right? Because yeah. uh, it's gonna be a two-stage S6CW to to be able to treat the uh, so the manganese doesn't cause them a problem, and it's three percent or better, right? Mm. And welcome back to studio. I'd like to thank Jim Gowans, president and CEO of Arizona Mining, once again for joining me. Um, if you'd like to check out the longer form edition of that interview, I will be writing a big article uh, upcoming probably in the next week or so uh, with many more comments from Jim. Uh, we get into quite a bit of detail on the project and the PEA. Uh, so do look forward to that. Please surf over to uh, northernminer.com. Um, and as always, please consider subscribing. Uh, it is a very reasonable value and you do get a lot more than uh, we get some of the depth uh, on the podcast here, but also the articles are, are it's significantly deeper in terms of details. Uh, so do please uh, check out northernminer.com. As always, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, um, and check out our YouTube and SoundCloud accounts. Um, and uh, just to wrap up here, I'm going to do, uh, we're reinvigorating the Yukon moment. Uh, and uh, big news that came down uh, this week was that uh, Barrett Gold, the world's largest gold company, uh, has made a substantial earn-in investment in attack resources and the rack Gold Project, 55 kilometers due northeast of Kino City. Uh, Barrick will potentially pay uh, $63.3 million for a 70% stake in Attack's Orion Project. Um, the payment consists of a private placement of $8.3 million and a two-stage $55 million exploration program. The first stage requires Barrick to spend $35 million on the property over five years to acquire a 60% interest. Uh, stage two involves Barrick uh, spending an additional $20 million to acquire the final 10%. Uh, and if my math is correct, those add up to 70%. <laughs> um, so yeah, another big news for the Yukon. Everyone seems to be 
all the gold majors seem to be jumping in there. We've seen Newmont, Goldcorp, we've seen uh, Agnico, and now we see Barrick. So exciting times for the Yukon Territory. We'll keep our eyes on that. Uh, I will be talking, hopefully, to the president and CEO of uh, Attack Resources, Graham Downs, in the next couple days. So I should have an article on that arrangement again probably next week, depending on timing. Um, but once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us in our little corner of cyberspace here at the Northern Miner Podcast. Uh, please do swing back around next week to uh, check in with Leslie and myself for uh, some more exciting interviews and content for you. Um, but yeah, this has been the Northern Miner Podcast. I am Matthew Keevil, and you guys have a great week. Yeah.